Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. We want to thank all of our Patreon members with a benefit available for all. I introduce Rachel's Weekly Check-Ins. Once a week, you'll find a short audio clip covering anything from what's going on in the world to sharing ideas that I'd like to expand on that I think would be of interest and of help to you. We brought something else fun for our patron tiers. You'll see some stylish tote bags and cool stickers. Share a picture of our merch on your social media and don't forget to tag us. Hi, everybody. Today on the show, we have a woman named Lisa. And Lisa is involved in an organization called Hashtag I Got Out. And it is one of many and kind of a growing number of places where people can connect with others who have had similar experiences and can be connected to resources. People who have been in restrictive environments and in cults. She got out of a small suburban new age therapy based group in 2016, which she had joined as a 19 year old single mother. This high demand group went through many phases over the 30 years she was involved, and the charismatic, narcissistic leader utilized modalities such as rebirthing therapy, affirmations, hot seat talk therapy, sleep deprivation, and as well as verbal and physical and sexual abuse as a means of control. These techniques, combined with intervals of positive reinforcement, held her captive in a sealed system where all efforts towards personal success were directed to benefit the leader only and not her. Creative endeavors were quashed if it meant confidence and self-esteem were to be gained. And that would, of course, threaten the leader. In 2015, there were enough cracks that Lisa realized that she could never become the person she joined the group to be if she stayed. Since she got out, she married the man who helped her find her way back to herself and out of the group. Lisa is passionate about supporting other cult survivors to find their own voices and share their own stories, and for those voices and stories to be heard, acknowledged, and understood. Here's Lisa now. I want to welcome Lisa today to the show. She is a special guest in that she has an important story to share, but also wants to really talk about a resource that's available to anyone who needs it. And it's very important because a lot of people don't know where to turn when they're looking for help or if there are resources that can really help them, in particular with people who who understand. So I'm happy to have you on the show for both those reasons. So take it away. Introduce yourself. My name's Lisa. I am a cult survivor. I've, uh, I was in a cult for 30 years and got out five years plus a few months ago. I honestly, when I got out, my group was 
a uh, therapy-based group. It was a self-help, kind of new age type group. When I left, I absolutely did not want to have anything to do whatsoever with cults at all ever again. It was a therapy-based group, so doing therapy was sort of triggering. Didn't like it. So, uh, you know, I've done some some reading and a lot of the resources that I've found helpful, I've shared with others. I, in the last six months, have embarked on a mission, though, and it kind of... Uh, Rear, reared up and grabbed me by the neck and said, I have to do this. <laughs> so the pandemic, I guess, really threw us back, all of us, all of humanity back on itself. The convergence of the pandemic and QAnon coming so feverishly to the surface with the pandemic and then my watching the vow really ignited something inside of me that made me realize that I needed to do something. I'm wondering, just going back to your story, if you want to tell a little bit more about it and also kind of address when you're involved in something for 30 years and something also that gives you a way of thinking about yourself, you know, how you even begin to look at who you are and how to define who you are upon leaving. So maybe Tavis, go back to the time that you were in it. What were some of the things that you could tell us about some of the experiences you remember that highlight what the group was like? Well, the group I joined and the group I left are two completely different things, as I think it is with pretty much all cults. When I started my journey with this group, I was 19. I was a single mom. I had a, a one-year-old child. And at the time that I happened into this situation, I was young, not knowing what to do with myself with a young kid. And so the first time that I came to a class that was hosted by this group and, and the man that led it, I had a sense of comfort and connection. And it was very welcoming, very familiar in a lot of ways because of my upbringing. I guess from the point I entered in in that first class, I just kept going with different classes. And soon, probably a year after I started going to classes at this group, the person who was running it decided that he wanted to make a support group. So a, a kind of more tighter knit group of people that, that would come on a more regular basis. I join that group. I think that you asked a question about how it was that I kind of got to find myself after I got out. So this is something that's really a, an interesting thing to discuss because uh, recently in the work that I've been doing with I Got Out, one of the people that I follow on Instagram 
did a podcast and announced on through the podcast that uh, April was Mooney Month, ex Mooney Month. And so in in my mission to amplify people's stories, I latched on to that concept and started promoting April as ex Mooney Month. And one of the things that happened is I started seeing or I started receiving stories from the kids that were born in to the Unification Church. And I will tell you, I found their stories just so compelling. Their experiences are really different. Kids that are born into cults have a very different experience than the adults that join because even though I was only 19 years old, I still had, you know, a person outside of that group that I could kind of go out, go back and collect the pieces of. And one of the things that really, really, really helped me in my healing after I got out was to go on road trips to places that I held dear or lived at when I was a kid, or just to be on that open road, experiencing new things authentically as myself. Of course, my husband shared some of the most beautiful places that he came from, and that was wonderful. But it really was a process of sifting through all of my past to collect myself again. And what I see with these kids that grew up, and this is you know, this is an issue that's really near and dear to me because of raising my daughter in the group, you know, to, to see and acknowledge these people's stories and what they've been through because they don't have any foundational thing to go back to. They're having to completely find who they are now as adults and their stories are just you know, their, their, their creativity, their resilience, their stories are just amazing. And I've learned a lot. <laughs> I've learned a lot. I'm sure. It is quite amazing. And the word resilience really does fit in here very well. And it's also sad because I know there, there are many people out there who are just silently the walking wounded, the ones who don't go for help and the ones who are too afraid to even start the process of trying to figure out what happened and how to be in the world. It's just, it feels too overwhelming. Or people sometimes who were born and raised in groups don't feel that they have a place for them because they had been taught that the world was not for them and now they're in the world and they don't have something to kind of go back to. And I think some also don't feel deserving of a good life and happiness because they either left or were kicked out or whatever it is, but I, so they don't avail themselves of help. The SGA is the second generation, that third and fourth and fifth generation. I've worked with people who are like fourth, fourth generation, fifth generation now of different groups. What is really quite amazing is this whole idea of self-definition and how you free yourself to define yourself. And that one of the things that I find helpful that a lot of people talk about, a lot of second generation people I've talked to talk about is that there isn't one right way. You have to kind of free yourself to know that you can be this kind of person or have that 
kind of persona and it can change from day to day and it can change in different environments. And, and so there's much more of uh, a wide net for what is okay, what's permissible, what's normal, what's human. And that can sometimes help, but still there is the worry that you're kind of going to do it the wrong way. Because if you're raised in that way of thinking, there, there's only one right way and one wrong way. A lot of people are worried about defining themselves because they think they're going to do it in a way that's going to be the wrong way or punishable or something. There's a lot of anxiety around that. One of my uh, cult leaders' favorite things to say was, your way doesn't work. That phrase was drilled into my head, my daughter's head, nonstop. You know, a thing that was different about my group than, say, the Moonies, the Unification Church, the JWs, Nexium, whatever, all these groups, they're really large groups. And the people that are involved in them are spread out. And in my group over the years, it was, it started like that. And over the years, people started falling away and he was focusing more in on that inner circle. In the end, it was just a handful of people. And I had lived in his house and raised my daughter in his house since the time she was five. So I had no real grounding in the world outside of the group. Something that you said a little bit ago when you're talking about recovery and people feeling ashamed or not knowing how to incorporate this experience into who they are in life as they're moving forward, that is one of the main reasons why we started this movement. It's kind of like, and I think the hashtag Me Too movement really laid the groundwork for this. That movement, Black Lives Matter, these are all movements that are focused on abuse of power. With cultic involvement, the abuse of power goes beyond a mere instant. One of the things that you'll see with Black Lives Matter, for instance, is it's usually the movement, the, the things happen in the world that cause a mass of people saying that's not okay. And it's a pretty, usually a pretty egregious offense where people can just look and say, yeah, that's not okay. <laughs> and with the instances of abuse of power that Me Too is addressing are you know, a little bit more nuanced than that, right? But it's usually just kind of a, a pointed incident. I was molested in a hotel room or, you know, something like that. I was raped, me too. When you're looking at cultic abuse, it happens over a really long period of time. Generally, you're involved in a group for years. and the abuses of power are very nuanced and you get cooked into thinking that things are a certain way and that it's okay. And you go along and things change and you know it's part of your growth to change with it and more and more and more you're accepting things that just aren't okay. 
And usually when somebody gets out of a group, it's because there's just that moment of like, uh-uh, that's too far. That's, that's not, we're not going for that. And you leave. But I think there's a lot of shame that happens from allowing yourself to get cooked that way. And so people aren't talking about it because freaking embarrassing. Oh my God, I believed that. You know, one of the reasons that I have this term systems of control, when I talk about the stories that are shared on the podcast, they're about systems of control is because it's also about a dual system. It could be a one-on-one kind of cultic group, a relational situation that people will sometimes come to me for saying, I feel like I was in a cult, but it was my marriage. And I don't know how to, how to define it, but, and then they list all the things that happened and that can happen because if you're with someone who has the same personality or personality disorder as someone who runs a group, then you're going to have the same experience. And it's very intense when it's very small as you're describing, whether it's a diet or whether it's a small group of just a number of people, there is a feeling a lot of people talk about that having a hard time shaking when they're out of a group, when it's a large one too, but especially when it's a small one, this idea of all eyes are on you and you are being watched all the time and being kept up to a certain kind of standard whether you're there or you're going about your business, doing your thing, but also knowing you were living in this man's home and raising your daughter there. And I'm sure he had a lot of things to say about how you're supposed to raise her and other, I'm sure sure he had an opinion about everything. And, you know, going back to this, your way doesn't work thing, which is so, such an interesting phrase. And so disempowering and produces a dependency because, oh, well, if my way doesn't work, then it must be that you're saying yours does. So I need to listen to you. And I wish also in the moment people who, people who haven't learned about those personality disorders don't know how to translate things like your way doesn't work because who has really studied that when they get involved in something or especially, or if they're raised in something or they get involved when they're young. But really when he's saying that, he's saying my fragile ego cannot tolerate you feeling confident that your way is going to work. And that's, you know, I wish there could be that. I have a question for you. I mean, that you really hit it on the head. And I was listening to a little bit Colty's latest episode with Matthew Remsky, and he had a quote from Dan Shaw that was just stunning. I tried to get it from Sarah before this happened, before our talk, but I, I couldn't get it. But That was, in a nutshell, what you just said. The leader's ego being so fragile that the success of other people couldn't happen or else it would annihilate his self-image. I'm curious in your work if you found any cult leaders that aren't narcissistic. It's rare, but it exists. And they have different kinds of groups than the ones that I see more often. I have noticed every once in a while, I come across kind of a cult leader who has uh, delusional thinking and gets people kind of drawn into that delusion. And then it's this folia de, this diagnosis of a shared psychosis. That would be kind of like the Heaven's Gate model, correct? Exactly. 
Right. Exactly. So yes, someone who feels that they have the answers, but they are seeing things in a particular way, inviting you to see them in a similar way. And just as with Heaven's Gate, the leader did also kill himself or had himself killed because he believed in the mothership. He really did believe. So while I think it's important to note that there are different kinds of cult leaders, it's still just like with Heaven's Gate is a cautionary tale because it can be just as dangerous, even if they're not, right, these malignant narcissists. But more often than not, you have the people who feel that they have either they have the answer or they know they're a Pied Piper and are so charismatic and they love the power. But yes, they come across as so uh, omniscient and omnipotent, but really they are protecting this very childlike place in them. And by saying those things, I sort of picture them having adult tantrums. So it's sometimes when people have come to me and said, you know, I'm so, still so worried about the leader of my group condemning me or coming after me and berating me. I try to help people. It's hard to shift over to this when someone has been such a powerful force in your life, but to sort of picture them wearing shorts and laying on the floor of a toy store and having a tantrum because their toy was taken away and they can't handle it. But they know as adults and as these supreme leaders, they can't be having a tantrum on the floor of the toy store, but instead they have this whole way of coming across like you have made a huge mistake and I'm going to guide you. But really they're saying, I want my toys back because as soon as you take that away from them, they do feel very threatened. People who are very bright and they exhibit that within their cultic group. That intelligence is the thing that's going to threaten the leader because the leader needs to be the smartest person in the room. And so they will make you feel that you are losing your mind or your ability to think or your ideas are stupid. That's the thing they're going to go after and the thing they're going to condemn the most. If they see themselves as being the ones who they need everyone to listen to, but they see that someone else in the group has some natural charisma, they're going to make them feel very insecure about their ability with other people and whatever it is that is the threat. And so oftentimes when people come out of a cultic group, I will sometimes ask them what they were berated for the most to help them understand that was probably because that was their skill, that was their strength. And they need to then reverse it because it was the thing that threatened the leader. It's like going back to this idea of every day is opposite day within a cult. That's interesting because my position in the group was that of running the house. I was the housekeeper and I was the person who bought all the groceries, did all the organization and cleaning and all the stuff. And at the same time that I was doing that, there was a ha always a handful of other women, usually, that were encouraged to be artists. And that was any time that I expressed my art in my own way, doing my own thing, it was something that was just stamped down. And, uh, you know, he involved me as an assistant in his art, but 
my art was always scary. And the thing that I see like in the project that I'm involved with right now, are you familiar with the Phoenix project? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. It's been around a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, um, one of the things that I've seen in working with people that are recovering is that creativity is like one of the biggest healers to be able to command where that brush stroke is going to be on the canvas or how you're going to frame that picture or what song you're going to sing. That's all people finding their own voice. and. So much of that has been diminished by cult involvement. So I'm I'm just a big champion of people's hearing, you know, getting to to speak, getting to hear the, even the words coming out of their own mouth. And that is probably one of the biggest things I think you can do for a person is to acknowledge their creative voice. I agree. I think who you are and who you feel free to be and how you express yourself and all of those things were not allowed within a group or they were redefined because you were told sort of who you were and you couldn't do self-definition. But I, I think, yes, I'm glad that you talked about the Phoenix project. It's been around a long time and uh, it's wonderful. And hopefully the International Cultic Studies Association conferences will be in person again soon. They've been online. And if anyone wants to check out their workshops and conferences, there's another one coming up in the beginning of July 2021. It was going to be in Montreal last year and it was going to be in Montreal this year, but it all needed to be virtual. But what's really beautiful is to see people's artwork and to see their writings and the music they create and the way that they express what they're feeling and what they've been through that is really quite beautiful and powerful. And it's reminding me actually of something I haven't thought about in a long time that just popped into my head with a boy I was working with who was 10. He had come off of a compound and I often, when kids are meeting in my office, I'll give them something to do just to keep them occupied or to do some art therapy. And I handed him a piece of paper and a pen and he started drawing a face and it was really very exact. And I thought, wow, he really knows how to draw. And I asked if I could see his drawing and he had drawn a picture of the leader of his group. And I was not expecting that. So I said, oh, well, I mean, I recognize this guy's now, he was in jail at the time, but still he used to harass the, the work that I used to do. At, there was a cult clinic in LA. He used to harass us there. So I knew him well, but I said, would you like to do another picture? I handed him another piece of paper. He drew a picture of the leader again. And I said, tell me about that. And he said, we are not allowed to imagine. It was the most startling sentence out of a 10 year old. We are not allowed to imagine. And if we draw something, it is to be the leader. And it's the only thing we're allowed to draw. And I thought, you're not allowed to imagine because that's your individual thinking. That's your brain. That's your brain. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Oh. So, right. So here you are, you know, also going back to your story of 
having your child there. Sometimes people, sometimes that's their impetus to leave their motivation. Unfortunately, it was not. It was not. So tell me about that, if you don't mind getting into that. When I joined the group, I was a single mom. I had just started a cleaning business. I was just trying to make my way. And when I entered into the group, it was like, I'm surrounded by adults that know how to do shit. You know, so it was, it was like a, a security thing for me. That was, oh, when I moved in, it was 1989. And I was looking this up the other day. Um, I think one of the things that really informed my group leader's decision to keep his group small was the Waco Branch Davidian incident. And that happened in 93. When 93 happened, we still had a lot of people. We were, there were a lot of people still coming around and doing classes and we were traveling and there was a lot of activity. And that happened. A few other people left a couple years later that made the group get smaller. And then it just, it kind of morphed into this intentional family thing to where my relationships with my real family were made minimized and and made to be not of value. You know, the people that I was living with were helping me raise my daughter. And in a lot of ways, because I was so young and I was one of the younger people in the group and I had this daughter, we were the young ones. We were the kids. And so my relationship with my daughter was really messed up because we, instead of being a mother-daughter, we were two children inside this organization, inside this group. It wasn't, you know, wasn't really, an, I guess it was an organization, but it wasn't that organized because mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they put a kid in charge of organizing it. <laughs> right. That's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, yeah, um, yeah, my daughter had a lot of challenges. I don't feel super okay with discussing those challenges. I really feel like her story is hers to tell. Absolutely. I will say this. When she left, that was at the height of some of the most egregious abuse I was getting from the leader. So it was, it was a real difficult time. Okay. I think that's very respectful too. Her, her story is her story. I mean, you, you are going to have an impact though, from remembering, you know, what, what you endured during that time. And also that at some point there was that tipping point where you just had to say, I'm out. I'm wondering how that happened. Well, it didn't happen for another 10 years. She left right before uh, she turned 18, and I stayed on. I met a man, and we were instantly just like this. And he saw me in a way that nobody else had ever seen me, the truth of me. It was somebody that I met that I could not have the group persona with but that I could be free to to be with and I wanted him to be in my life 
and some of our early childhood experiences were very similar and some of the ways that he was raised paralleled mine and he was able to understand my billing of my group as being a an intentional community and that we were doing all these great things and so he was willing to check it out and after you know a short period of time of being around he knew it was a crock of bs and stuck with me and helped fuel my creativity and get me to a point and this happened kind of cyclically <laughs> that i could see that what i was living in was not what i was proposing that it was and it took a long time it took a lot of different instances of you know the leader being a total liar and complete jerk <laughs> And it's breathe in, breathe out kind of thing of digging in, digging out, digging in, digging out. But after a period of time, I was able to see that the person that I was, that I joined the group to be, wasn't the person I could be there, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a beautiful way to say it. It's true. So anyways, I was just curious if you come across that. <laughs> Uh, I do. And it's, it's rare. It takes a lot of, it takes a lot of risk because there are, unfortunately, people who have gotten involved in groups have gotten very involved at times to help kind of open someone else's eyes. And then they've gotten really more involved uh, than was safe and then no longer kind of had a sense of why they were there. And then at times the person they were trying to rescue opened their eyes and then they couldn't get the loved one out. So it's, I've seen it in very, unfortunately, messy ways, but I've also seen people who come in to help in a very gentle way, as you're describing, kind of make some points, point some things out, be kind of the mirror. And I've seen it with some success and there's a lot of gratefulness, of course, afterwards for a person getting into the trenches with you. By the time this episode comes out, there will have already been an episode out with two women who are married, one of whom stayed in a group for two years after she wanted to leave in order to be that person, to be that anchor, to help her wife see. And so, yes. We do come across it. It is more rare. It's kind of interesting. The other co-founder of igotout.org, Jurette Bullion, she, her partner, she was in a group for 18 years and her husband was in the same group and left two years before she did. And her husband stuck by, didn't say anything until she had that crack and he said, yeah, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> wow. Because he knew, he knew that if he said, you've got to leave or I'm leaving, that their marriage would, would fall apart. And uh, I think it just takes a real special kind of person to be able to hold that, to hold that space. So I'm, yes, you talk about gratitude. I'm very grateful. He has been my backbone. Beautiful. Really, really wonderful. I just wonder also when you're in a relationship and then you come out, you have to, I think, 
and you get to redefine the relationship and how you interact with each other. And sometimes it, it gives it's you a chance to kind of, it's the same. <laughs> it's the really. same. How interesting. <laughs> We've been the same way together since we met. Pretty cool. Very cool. And okay. So then just, you know, with, you know, a couple minutes remaining, I wanted to just find out from you what has helped you that you can share with other people. What has helped you on your recovery? We know about getting involved and learning and reading. And I hope to write a book at some point one day. I don't have the time, but I really, I've been thinking about it forever. I really, I've been asked to do it forever. I just, I'm busy with clients in my podcast, but I will do it. I will. Are you a cult survivor as well? I'm not. I have a sibling who was in one. And so it was, I was raised with that in, as part of our family and, um, gotcha. the rescue and not being able to find resources at the time, uh, how it, there was an immediate shift in personality and hard to, hard to get the person back, not impossible, but took a while. And so that was our dinner table conversation growing up. And because there were so few resources at the time when I was getting my counseling license in the early nineties, I thought I need to do this anyway. But I think, I think, yes. So getting involved really, whether you want to be an activist or not, but activating that part of yourself that really feels that you're doing something that makes a difference to yourself and to other people is what helps a lot of people. And I wonder what else has been helpful for you in terms of your healing. Road trips, creativity, my dog. Your dog. Uh -huh. Long walks, mm -hmm. nature, all of those things, I think, uh, ground you into who you are, gives you time to think, time to just own your being. That's definitely key. You know, for me, the biggest part, the biggest thing I think that's healing me is helping other people. When I am able to give somebody a platform to share their story, it's really difficult being anonymous in the virtual world. And part of my passion in creating this resource, as you put it, this network of the I Got Out website and the, um, you know, all of the different resources that I've pulled into that is also giving people an opportunity to tell their story through our website. And by them sharing their story anonymously and then getting it seen by a lot of people, that is extremely validating for people. They, um, I, I've gotten just some of the best good feelings by being that funnel that people can express through. And also when you were just talking about going on walks and walking your dog and just having a good time and going on road trips, I think people who haven't been in that kind of controlled environment might not realize what a luxury that is, right? To go where you want to go and to spend however long you want to spend there without needing to come back to take care of all your responsibilities and be on the hamster wheel and watch your watch, make sure, right? And 
just to have that chance to breathe and to meander and to feel okay with taking your time. So I want to thank you for your time today and how you're spending your time for your own healing, but also for other people's. And so it's very valuable and I really do appreciate it. And tell people where they can find the websites and other links. Sure. We're, uh, I got out.org super easy. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and really the I got out.org website was created to support the concept of the hashtag movement. So hashtags can be used for different things. It can be kind of a collating system of how to find information. They can be a branding sort of thing, or it can be something that supports an idea. And the creation of the website was to support the hashtag movement. Tell your stories, tell your stories, use the hashtag. And, you know, ultimately we want to take the experiences that cult survivors have had and really open up that can of worms and talk about it because I am of the mind that I think a lot of groups go unnoticed. Mine being one of them, Jarette, the co-founder of I Got Out, her group was another small, what she calls an everyday cult. They're just the little groups right next door that seem pretty innocuous, and there's all kinds of control going on behind the scenes. And I think when we start looking at our experiences in a different way, we're going to see that the hashtag movement probably could apply to a whole lot more people than hashtag me too. Yeah. Okay. So, and you're right. Things can happen right next door. In fact, I found out about a group that was two blocks from where I live. And because I was talking to a person who said that they were involved with this whole system of this. Anyway, it's a whole long story. But they're all living together in a house. No, totally. When we moved, when we moved into this house, we had neighbors down the street that invited us over for a nice potluck dinner with their church group. We had another couple down the road that wanted to talk all kinds of new age stuff with us, recruit us into their group. There's a lot. And whether or not abuses happen in those groups, that's another thing. You never know. And I just want to put it out there that I think that cults don't start out abusive. I think that there's a life cycle of these cultic environments that when you have somebody that is a narcissist, a sociopath, that has these personality tendencies, when they go through the cycle of having people project that leadership and give over their power, their personal power to one person, that that distorts that mind. And that's when the power goes to their head and bad things happen. Right. Oh, I think that's beautifully said. Yes. And you find out a lot about a person and their nature or their issues by how they handle that power. I mean, those are those have been quotes throughout history, you know, to give someone power. J.R. Tolkien. Right. You yeah. can only, only one person could wear that ring without mm-hmm. going nuts. Right. It's true. It's true. Right. 
Because if I were to be running a group and people then said, we're not going to make any decision without asking you first, I thought, oh, no, no, please don't, don't do that. So it would make me so uncomfortable. And don't. it's like the life of Brian, leave me alone, you know, like, just okay, stop, stop that. Uh, but for other people, they need it. It's like air, they need it. And you can see it, they love it. And they get energized by taking your power away or by accepting the power you're giving them uh, freely and as kind of a bottomless pit. Well, and they feel like they have a certain, I mean, the guy that ran my group had an idea that it was his job, his mission. That was his personality. Somebody's got to be in charge and it was going to be him. Wow. <laughs> now he's so. in charge of himself and four other people. So there you go. And hopefully soon it will just be himself. Okay. Lovely to get to know you. And I'm sure our paths will cross again. I wish you well. And thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. One more thing before you go. Thank you to Lisa for all of her work in the community and also for coming on to the podcast to talk about her experiences. You know, for so many of my clients who are trying to access mental health professionals, support groups, it's highly triggering for them. They worry a lot about a lot of it. Being in a room with other people and feeling that suddenly the spotlight is on them and they have to say something or disclose something before they feel ready because that's how it was before. Or that they're just going to succumb to the fact that they're now in a situation with someone in a position of authority, even though I don't really see myself that way with my clients. But that is how it is for a lot of people who came out of situations where the person in charge was absolutely in charge and they had to forfeit their power to that person. How do you offer your trust to somebody then who is in a position of authority? And also, how do you trust yourself in making the kind of decisions you need to make to know if the person you're seeking help with and from is trustworthy? When you go to anyone to get help, whether it is someone who says that they're a spiritual healer or counselor, coach, therapist, licensed anything, unlicensed anything, just where they're going to help you become the kind of person you want to be or help guide you on some path, you want to watch out for a lot of things. That's why I made a video about it uh, on YouTube. Because I think there are certain things that should make you just kind of go out the door. And one of the things is if the person who you're working with decides how often you need to meet with him or her and doesn't take into consideration how much you can afford, how often you can go, how much time you can devote to it, and also how much is too much for you, how much can you tolerate? being in that kind of emotional state or dealing with emotional issues. That should all be case by case. And you should be an active participant in that decision. The person also who is controlling in this situation is someone who decides how long you need to continue. 
And of course, the answer is for as long as they want you to continue, not for as long as you need, but because they still need for you to be dependent on them because it feeds their ego or they still need for you to line their wallets with your money because that's what they want. And that's part of their motivation for doing this work. And so it doesn't matter if you're ready to be done or ready even to take a break to see if you might feel well enough, strong enough to be without therapy for some time. That threatens someone who wants control over you. They don't want you to have an opportunity to find out that you don't need them anymore, and maybe you never did. The other thing to watch out for is if you need to answer every question they ask of you, no matter if the information is not relevant to the issue, no matter if it feels too revealing, no matter if it seems too soon, to be entrusting that person with that information. Not only do you need to answer all the questions, but you're criticized for not being open to answering. That somehow that's your paranoia or that's your distrust that's getting in the way of you and your happiness. People also who are in bad situations with coaches, healers, and the like are criticized for not being there for every session. You are made to feel bad. You're made to feel that you're somehow not treating the person who's helping you with the kind of respect they deserve as though it were about them. Or that you're not really committed enough to the process. A lot of people are very worried when they get involved in the former cult member support group that I have online, where they're afraid that if they don't show up because of the experiences they've had in the past, We're going to spend a significant amount of time, we meaning myself who's facilitating it and anyone else who's participating, but we're going to spend this time bad-mouthing them, criticizing them for not being there and for not being there for themselves, not being there to support the others. And that's simply not going to happen. And if it does happen that someone wants to talk about someone who's not there in a negative way, I'm going to stop that. Because that's not okay. You can't talk about people behind their back. But also, what kind of precedent is that setting? That's not a safe group experience. But that's an expectation based on people's very unhealthy group experiences before, where you were grilled and you were criticized and defamed with you there or without you there. The other part is that if this person who is treating you talks all about how committed they are to helping you and also how self-sacrificial they are about helping you, that they're exhausting themselves, that they could be with other clients, but they're choosing to be with you, and that somehow you need to feel indebted or guilty for not continuing with them, not paying them more money if that's what they want, not being as devoted. In an unhealthy situation, too, you are not allowed to say no or maybe. Very similar to being in a relationship with a narcissist. If you disagree with what the person is telling you, with the person who is offering you this kind of counsel, that's a threat to someone who has a very fragile ego. And they will make you wrong for thinking of them as wrong. 
And if they tell you to do something and they tell you to change something, and instead of saying, absolutely, I'm going to get right on that this afternoon, you say, well, maybe. Mm, It's not a bad idea, but I'm not sure. That's in equal measure a threat, especially to a narcissist, because you didn't say absolutely yes. You also want to be careful about cross boundaries. If the person you're working with touches you in a way that doesn't make you feel comfortable at all, and it doesn't even have to be sexual touch, it could be, which should never be part of any kind of therapeutic or counseling relationship. But if they're touching you on your shoulder or they come in for a hug and that's just not what you're comfortable with, you set that boundary and you say, that's not something that I want to do. And that's not something I feel comfortable with. And they need to respect you and your body and your wishes. If it doesn't happen, if they make you feel bad for it because they were feeling rejected or they were feeling embarrassed because they leaned in for a hug and you leaned away, again, if they have a fragile ego, if they feel entitled, they're going to make you feel bad for doing that just because it felt like kind of an ouch to them. But your job is not to take care of them. You also want to make sure that you're not starting to do things in a personal way for them. Running errands. They're not using you for free labor. You're not cleaning their house. You're not taking care of their loved ones. You're not needing to listen to all of their issues. And they're leaning on you for you to support them. There does need to be a very clearly defined role that they play and you play. And they work for you. You don't work for them. And you certainly don't work for them for free and outside the office space. When Lisa talked about going through this kind of therapy where, I hate to even call it therapy, where they did this thing called rebirthing, where sometimes people get kind of rolled up into a rug and then they're pulled out of this rug like they get to be reborn. Actually, there's some people who have died from that therapy. And things like hot seat talk therapy, where you're put on the hot seat, which is what most people remember with great dread and post-traumatic stress from some of these situations. And that there is sexual abuse or physical abuse and sleep deprivation, all as means of control. You not only have the obligation, I think, to yourself to leave but you also have the right to complain whether a person is licensed or not. You want to make sure that when you feel that you're really being pushed and someone says, you know, you need to come every day to talk to me or you really need my help and you need to come to me before every decision and I'm also going to push you harder than you really want to be pushed. And I'm going to make you uncomfortable and I'm going to get you to kind of almost fall apart so that you can be rebuilt. That's also a time to run for the hills. And as I say to my clients and to others, you never need to have a breakdown in order to have a breakthrough. And don't let anyone convince you that you do. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon. 
at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrination podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.